Hey guys, welcome to the final installment of Calvary Chapel Newcastle online for 2021. And honestly, I hope for a very, very long time. I'm really looking forward to getting back together for some in-person fellowship and real community. Uh, we've missed you guys and we're looking forward to being together again. Today, I wanted to take the opportunity to look through the tapestry of scripture with an overarching theme of God's desire to bring a blessing to all of his imagers, that is his image bearers, people, humankind, through his plan to use one people to bear his name. That's namely Israel. To do that, we're going to look at the call and the commission of Abraham in Genesis 12 verses one through three, so feel free to turn there or put your devices there. We're gonna to refer to a story in Abram's life that fits within this theme. And then we'll look at another Old Testament story that the Lord has placed on my heart and my mind um, as particularly relevant for us during this time in this cultural moment and in New South Wales in general. And we'll weave together some scriptures from the New Testament as well and then wrap it all up with a practical application for how we as believers, as God's children can together live in such a way so as to be a blessing in any circumstance. So with that, we'll go ahead and read Genesis 12 verses one through three, then we'll pray and dive in. And most of what I read today is gonna be from the New American Standard translation. So starting in Genesis 12, one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you so much for maintaining your scriptures for us, for taking the effort to communicate to us in the first place, for eagerly desiring a relationship with us, making that available. And I thank you so, so much for the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers and encourages us to better know and understand your word and apply it to our lives. I pray that the study that, um, that you've led me to do over the last few weeks will be a blessing. I pray that it will be an encouragement to someone other than myself. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that you be glorified through me, in me, and um, through me in the community as well. God, draw us near to you. And that's, this is all that I ask in your name. Amen. Now, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, these first three verses, starts off with God telling Abram, leave this and enter into what I'm gonna do for you. Uh, kind of a, just a quick side note, this comes right after the Table of Nations, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where the world has been scattered and there was one people group, one language, and now they're scattered everyone, everywhere. So the, the entire uh, people or nation, the, what could have been called roughly somewhat the family of God up to that point, just being humankind, has been split and separated. And God is saying now, um, out of all of the Gentiles, out of all of the nations, I'm going to accomplish my good, pleasing, and perfect will by taking one family 
and working through that family line. And that's how I'm going to bring about my perfect plan using imperfect people. So verse 2 of Genesis 12 says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now God always has a reason for blessing us. And it is not simply so that we can receive blessing. It is so that being blessed, we may in turn be a blessing to others. Now listen also to how Genesis 12, 2 and 3 are translated in the complete Jewish Bible translation. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you. By you, all the families on the earth will be blessed. Now there's a subtle difference that stands out to me between the New American Standard and the Complete Jewish Bible, which is a, just a style of translation. Both of them are English, so of course we have to take this with a pinch of salt. But listen to this. In the second part of, of verse two, in the New American Standard, he says, I will, make your name, uh, I will make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. In the complete Jewish translation, it says, I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. Now, it's a subtle difference, but to me, so you shall be a blessing sounds passive. It's going to inevitably happen, and that is true because it is God's promise. But the phrasing you are to be a blessing, to me, sounds like participation, partnership. God will bring it about through his promise and the active participation in that promise by the object of the promise, in this context, Abraham. When I read this, it's as if God is saying, Abraham, I'm going to do these things for you. I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your name and your reputation great. I'm going to extend blessing through you and also protect you. And as I do all of these things for you, I want you to live intentionally in such a way so as to be a blessing because through you, I will bless all of the families of the earth. Now, we know that that final promise, by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, refers specifically to Jesus. That's where its fulfillment does lie. But here we see that God's method of working out his plan is partnership with his image bearers. He desires that we participate with him in this plan by living faithful, righteous lives that reflect his character. And why is this, it important that Abraham, if it's inevitable that through him, everyone, every nation, every family of the earth is gonna be blessed, why is it important that Abram live in such a way so as to be a blessing? Well, we could look at his interaction with Abimelech in Genesis 20. Briefly summarized, as you may recall this story, Abram goes to a foreign land. When he arrives there, he tells the ruler of this land that his wife is actually his sister. As a result, Abimelech, the ruler of the land, brings Sarah into his harem. God thankfully intervenes and stops Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah and committing adultery and actually appears to him in a dream. At the same time, we find out at the, kind of at the tail end of this story that all of the, the women in Abimelech's family line and in, in his dominion were barren. They were cursed. As a result of Abimelech taking 
Abram's wife, Sarah. But Abimelech, when, when the Lord appears to him in a, in a dream, Abimelech says, but God, this is exactly what, Abram told me that it's his, his sister. Had I known, I never would have done such a thing. And so God says, Abram is my prophet. He's gonna pray for you. He's gonna bring healing about, but yes, you are innocent. And so it's this really curious story where ultimately we see Abram is driven not by faith, but by fear. And as a result, God glorifies his own name not through Abraham, but in spite of Abraham. Believer, my brother, my sister in Christ, there are times in my life and in yours where God glorifies his name through us. And there are times in my life and in yours where he glorifies his name in spite of us. Let us live our lives so as to be a blessing as God defines it. No matter the circumstances, no matter who seems to be in charge here on earth, we know that the Lord is working out his plan and ultimately he is in control. And he is the one who created all things, in whom, for whom, and through whom everything that has been made was made and in whom we live and move and have our being. We can trust him. Now, there are many stories of difficult circumstances throughout the scripture that we could look at as this pattern of being a blessing. But the one that's been on my mind quite a bit recently is the exile in Babylon and the staged return of God's people to Jerusalem, which took about 90 years. And we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the record of the Babylonian exile, I see rich truths of God's character, his desire and a plan to bring blessing to all mankind, his long, surfing, sorry, his long suffering and his perfect justice to a lesser degree. I also see a glimpse of familiarity as we look back on these past two years of uncertainty, shifting goalposts, cultural change, and as we look forward in hope to an end that will come soon, hopefully before Christ returns, <laughs> but maybe not. So what I wanna do from here is look at how God wanted his people to be a blessing to all of the nations, even and especially in the context of tragedy, uncertainty, and hope. Obviously, there are some things which do not apply when we look at the, the exile to Babylon, but there are principles based on God's character and his desire for his people to be a blessing around, uh, be a blessing to those around them that we can apply to our lives. So this is not a point for point comparison between the Babylonian exile and our modern day circumstances, as if to say that they're the same thing because they clearly are not. However, it is a reflection on what God was doing, not just, in spite of difficult, not just in spite of difficult circumstances, but through them. And it's also a look at how through those difficult circumstances, God magnified his glory and his blessing in a way that he would not have been able to do without those difficult circumstances. So as we look at, at a few different passages, we're gonna be asking the following questions. Number one, why were God's people exiled to Babylon? Number two, 
How were God's people told to live and behave during that period of exile? Number three, how did the people behave during the time of exile? Number four, how did Yahweh, God, use his chosen people during that time of exile? And fifth, on returning from exile. So number one, why were God's people exiled to Babylon? In Jeremiah 25, verses three through 11, and summarized as it was because habitual disobedience and refusal to listen to and obey the Lord and be the blessing that he asked them to be, that he wanted to, them to be as the people who bore his name to those around them. For 23 years, Jeremiah proclaimed the message of hope and also of warning to God's people. But rather than behaving like God's people, they followed after the false gods of the people around them. So, rather than God working through his people, he instituted a plan to work in spite of them. Sound familiar? Jeremiah 25 verses 8 and 9 say, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against all of these nations round about them, and I will utterly destroy them and make, make them a horror and a hissing and, and an everlasting uh, desolation. So rather than working through Israel, because of their disobedience, God must work in spite of them through the Babylonian empire to bring about his righteous just judgment. Now, you might wonder whether this was just inevitable. I mean, after all, in Joshua, the Israelites were told to drive out and sometimes utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land. Now, honestly, these are still some of the passages that I struggle with. But here's something that I do know, and I trust the judge of all the earth to do what is right. If you look back at Genesis 15, there's another, another part of the Abrahamic covenant. And I'll just read one of my favorite passages, to be honest. Um, it's after Genesis 15, 6, Gen God has promised Abram that he would become a great nation. Abram and Sarah don't have a son yet, and so Abram says, but this is obviously only going to work through one of my servants, because I don't have a child, so how is this going to happen? And God says, it will be through your your son, your line. And in Genesis 15, 6, Abram believes God. God credits it to him, to him as righteousness. In the next verses, Abram says, okay, but how can I be sure? So he believes God, but he still has some questions. That's, that's understandable. I'm that way often. Starting in verse 12 of Genesis 15, God has made, makes a covenant with Abram. It says, the sun was going down and and a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not there. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That's the, the um, enslavement in Egypt. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. 
This to me is beautiful because when we read about the long suffering of God, the patience and the endurance, if you do the, the maths there, this could be a period of about 700 years between when God promises this to Abram and when God allows the Israelites to go back in and drive out the nations of the land. And why does he hold off for that long? Primarily because the sin of one people group in the land does not yet merit their destruction. Now, there were many other people groups, and so it's, to me, it's, it's speculative to say this, but hypothetically speaking, maybe all of those other people groups had reached a point where they, were, they had reached a point of sin that merited their destruction, so to speak, but this one nation hadn't. And we also know that, which we'll get to in a moment, but we also know that there were other people that when they heard the glories of God, they put their faith in him and they wanted to become part of the community of Israelites. They became proselytes. So when we look at the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt, it wasn't actually only the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel. Among them were also proselytes who'd become convinced that Yahweh is the only God. They desired to follow him and they left along with the Israelites as members of that community, which became God's people. They were with the Israelites when they received the law. They were with the Israelites when they entered into a covenant agreement with Yahweh at Mount Sinai and while they wandered in the desert. Now, maybe their religious background had a hand in wayward wanderings and thinkings of the Israelites in the first place. But to be honest, the Israelites had been enslaved in a totally different culture that worshipped a number of gods, so it would have crept into their thinking. And this is the first, the, the giving of the law, the writing down by Moses, is the first time that we hear anything about a writing down of God's, God's law and his covenants. But here's the principle. When a person encountered the people of God and put their trust in Yahweh, they were to be welcomed into the community of Israel by their faith as proselytes. See, God's plan was never purely about Israel. His plan is and always has been about him for all the families of the earth through Israel, ultimately in Christ. His plan for Abram's biological descendants was, I will bless your family in order to bless every family. And so when the Israelites continually rejected God, continually denied the opportunity to be a blessing, he brought in Nebuchadnezzar, who had no such covenant with God and through whom no such redemptive process was going to come. So God worked in spite of his people rather than through them. Now as to God's long-suffering he desires that none should perish. He wants his people to be a blessing. So he continually communicates and offers them the opportunity to walk with him in obedience, to partner with him in his plan for blessing. In Jeremiah 26, verses two to six, it says, thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who come to worship the Lord at the Lord's house and say everything I've commanded you to speak. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I'm planning to do to them because of their evil deeds. And you'll say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you will not listen to me, 
to walk in my law, which I've set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I've been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened. I will make your house like Shiloh, and this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. Because the Israelites repeatedly refused to fulfill that calling, they were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, were taken to Babylon, just as God said. And as a result, they became a curse, much like Abraham became a curse to Abimelech in his sin. So question number two, how were God's people told to live and behave during this period of exile? And this is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Jeremiah 20, 29, verse 1, says, These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. Then picking up in verse 4 to 7, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, become the father of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters as husbands, or two husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply in that land. Do not decrease. Verse 7 Seek the welfare of that city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will also have welfare. God essentially says to the Israelites, I'm sending you into exile, but live there, be invested in the community so as to be a blessing. And remember, your citizenship and your promise are not fulfilled in that land, not during this temporary exile. The exiles are to seek the flourishing of the places to which they have been exiled. They are told to be a blessing amidst trial, uncertainty, and and unfamiliarity. Because of this great hope that we have, we can live through our difficult circumstances in such a way so as to be a blessing to those around us. In the darkness of difficulty, we can bring light to those around us. And that's something that God drives home in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 13, when he says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So again, in the darkness of difficulty, because of the promises God has given us, we can bring light to those around us. Now this reminds me of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, when he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So then, let your good deeds shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Have you ever come from a dark room after your eyes have adjusted to to the low level of light 
and come into the light of day or a bright room and had to squint because it's just painfully bright. Imagine how much worse it would be if you came out of that dark room and stared directly into the sun. Or if some well-intentioned person decided to take a very bright light and shine it in your eyes. The message of Christ is convicting enough that ambient light from the truth makes people uncomfortable and often recoil. It doesn't need our help. So if we want to be a blessing as ambassadors of Christ, we need to strike that balance between speaking the truth and love. Love for Yahweh who is the truth and his love for the hearers of truth, no matter what they believe, no matter how they're behaving, so that they might hear, understand, and turn to him and be restored. Speaking the truth in love is crucial in our communication style because you may recall what Dirk said in his sermon on 2 Timothy back in September. You can know your Bible really well and you can still be a mean, arrogant, foolish jerk. As Christ's ambassadors and his communicators, we don't hold back from the truth, but we do seek to present it wisely in a way that will most likely cause the individuals that we're speaking with to glorify our Father who is in heaven. This is how we live in such a way so as to be a blessing to other individuals. Now in Jeremiah 29:7, it says the exiles were to seek the welfare of this city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, in its welfare, you will have welfare. This reminds me of Luke 20, where Jesus is asked whether God's people should pay taxes to the Romans, to which he responds by saying, give me a coin, whose image and whose inscription is on it? And they say Caesar's. And he responds, then give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give, give to God what belongs to God. Our earthly possessions, God wants to use them to bless others. Part of that is taxes and whatever else. We belong to the Lord. We are made in his image. We don't just bear his image on us. We are made in his image. And as his believers, we bear his name. And thus we are his representatives. And we can represent him well, accurately, lovingly, truthfully, or poorly. Now, God outlines the role of governing officials and our responsibilities as blessing-bearing citizens in a number of places. You could look at Romans 13, uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 20, and in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2, which we'll speak on in just a moment. One expression of our worship to God is to work for the welfare of the place that he has put us in by using the systems and the means at our, at our disposal to partake in civil society in a way that points people to Christ as a blessing. Now for some, it may be being involved in government. For others, maybe not for profit work or a business owner creating jobs, just loving people. Maybe it's to be the best employee that, that your boss could ask for, like a faithful barista. Honestly, who can find one of those? Just kidding. Committing all of our work to the Lord. Our work is worship. Now, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says to Timothy, First I urge you 
Entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving must be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet, tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. Specifically here in 1 Timothy 2, like Jeremiah 29 verse 7, God tells us to be active in prayer so that God might move hearts and minds of those who are in authority to look favorably on us, the citizens of heaven that are under their earthly authority. Let me also say this. Now is not the time for Christians to withdraw from a society that they perceive is careening toward a precipice. Now is the time for Christians to dive into the thick of it in humility, love, tenderness, and compassion, being equipped, established, and entrusted with this calling to be a blessing by none other than the God himself who put on flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to pull back and let the world go to hell in a handbasket, I actually understand that urge. I understand that desire. But it's not what our Father calls us to. It's not what he modeled for us. We will be present with the Lord when and how he desires us to be. And until that time, he says that we are to be a blessing here on earth to our community, just as he is a blessing with us. And that brings us to the question of in the exile, how did God's people live and behave? Ezra chapter 9, you could look at the entire uh, verses 1 through 4. But one one of the key passages, I'll just read it. Um, Ezra 9, verses 1 through 4. When these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, according to the abominations that those Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites, and Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, or the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives, for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Ezra says, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment, my robes. Now, this passage in particular, when we talk about how people were behaving during the time of exile. This is referring specifically to the Jews who remained in Israel during that period of exile. Apparently, they continued in their complacency. And rather than being a set-apart, holy people to be a blessing to all nations, they literally married into another cult- other cultures around them. They took on the values, the customs, and the worship of the false gods that God was using Nebuchadnezzar to bring righteous judgment upon. This shouldn't surprise us. It's basically what the nation of Israel had been doing since they were brought out of Egypt. What is a shame is that God had declared he would use Israel as his righteous vessel in the land, but their unwillingness to be devoted to him resulted in not only their judgment, but on God using a foreign king as his righteous vessel. And again, we see rather than God working out his plan through Israel, He worked out his plan in spite of Israel. And this was written after after 
the first wave of exiles had gone back to Jerusalem as well. So we see that some of the people basically just cast off what God told them to be doing. They just completely disregarded it. Now this next, next one is, next response is the polar opposite to that. And while I don't have an exact verse for it, so I'll call it speculation, it's based on my human nature and also on some of my own cross-cultural experiences. I imagine that some of the people of Israel, when they were exiled to other lands, they didn't invest in the community. In fact, they may have become so zealous for their own culture and the need to retain it that they rejected the culture around them. I think we can actually see that happen in the first generations of, of people that move from one country to another. In this way, they missed the opportunity to be a blessing to the nations, which is the purpose for which they were called there. But then there was another group that struck that balance. Keeping their eyes fixed on God's precious promises, they flourished in the land, they were persecuted, they were admired, they were honored to different positions of authority, but ultimately, they were able to be a great blessing and used by God. Which brings us to question number four. How did God use his people as a blessing to all the nations during and in the years of the exile? Now, there are a lot of books that we could actually look at um, that go into the lives of people who faithfully followed the Lord, and as a result, they were a blessing. But I just briefly want to look at Daniel, and then we'll draw in some other, um, some other illustrations as well. See, Daniel exemplified Jeremiah 29.7, where it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in it, in its welfare, you will have welfare. Now in Daniel 6, verses 1 through 3, we read that when Darius comes to power, he retains Daniel in a position of authority that Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, who had, um, had lifted Daniel 2. And that was in Daniel chapter 5. Darius reshuffles the structure of, of the government, he establishes three commissioners who oversaw the 120 satraps that governed the kingdom. And Daniel was one of these three commissioners. But in Daniel 6.3, we read that Daniel began to distinguish himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Daniel was seeking the welfare of this city so much that he became such a great blessing he was continually promoted to a position of greater influence. Obviously, this doesn't happen for everyone, but it's the way that the Lord choose, chose to use Daniel. As Daniel obediently sought the welfare of this city, walking humbly with the Lord, desiring to be, to be a blessing as he had been called to by God, God put him in a, great, a place of greater influence with an ear to the king. Now, we know also that from Daniel 6.10, Three times a day, he prayed and gave thanks before the Lord his God. And this was known to many people. In fact, it's the discipline that the jealous commissioners and satraps used to trick Darius and play to his ego. 
But here's the end result. We know the, the consequence was being thrown to a den of lions for praying to or worshiping anything other than Darius. Darius, after, after he had agreed to this, put it in writing and then he was bound to that because it was a law of the Medes and the Persians. And even as a ruler, he was beneath that law and subject to it. He had to throw Daniel into the lion's den. But we pick up in Daniel 6, verses 20 to 22. When Darius had come near to the den, to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the, the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed me. And as much as I was found innocent before my God and innocent toward you, O king, I have no, I've committed no crime. Because Daniel was blameless before the Lord and before men, God continued to use him as a blessing and work through him. Now, a few verses later in Daniel 25 through 28, 28 after Darius punishes the people who tricked him in the first place, which would have been basically the entire government. We read this. Daniel, or sorry, Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, the nations, and men of every language who were living in the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He is the living and enduring God forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Then verse 28 says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now, this is short, but it is one of many letters that were written by the rulers of the global empires of Babylon. That'd be Nebuchadnezzar. You could look at Daniel 3, 28 through 30 for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what, what Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed after that. You could look at Daniel chapter 4 for what Nebuchadnezzar had to, to say to the way that God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar. That again, he wrote and sent out to the entire, the entire nation. You could look at the Medo-Persians, Darius, Cyrus, Xerxes, Artaxerxes. All of them wrote letters to their entire nation, their entire empire, the known world at the time where the Bible takes place, glorifying the living God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Mordecai, and Esther. And there are many more. But here are the takeaways. God will accomplish his plan. He invites us to partner with him by faith and in faithfulness so we can be blessed in order to be a blessing to those around us. The period of the exile shows again and again God exalting his name among the nations through his faithful people who lived for him and in so doing proved to be a blessing in their time and their place in different nations. Now these were partial fulfillments of God's plan to bless the nations of the earth through the children of Abraham. His plan was ultimately fulfilled in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, whose name in Hebrew 
means roughly Yahweh is salvation. And God's plan continues to be worked out through believers who are called to be a blessing through their lives as well. But let's return to our example of the Jews returning from Israel, or sorry, from exile. A fifth question on the returning is, how had things changed? See, things constantly change. If you have moved away from the town that you grew up in, and you've been away for a few years, and you go back to it, you'll notice new buildings. You're, you'll notice that your friends uh, have, have grown. They have new friends. Or if, if you've ever had one of those annoying uncles, like I tend to be, that says, wow, you are so big, you know, because you haven't seen your niece or your nephew in years, then things change. How had things changed during the period of, of the exile? Well, for one, when under Assyrian rule, the Assyrians had reshuffled people around in their, their empires, they conquered the globe. And they would take them from their home nation, their home territory, and transplant them somewhere else in an effort to strip them of their cultural identity and try to make everyone, f because of their discomfort and they, the lack of familiarity, they tried to give them a new identity, Assyrian. Nebuchadnezzar had removed all the rulers and the wealthy from the land, leaving the poor to look after it, tending to the vineyards, etc. So there's a lot of cultural change going on. As these many cultures lived together, their values and practices would have changed, resulting ultimately in a changed culture. But also, the Jews who were exiled would have been impacted by their, their culture as well. In some cases, they would have become more zealous, but in other cases, they would have taken on the, the habits and the characteristics of those around them. It's pretty natural. Now, I remember when Esther and I first got married, I moved to the UK, and we, I had a totally different lifestyle. I was moving from having been uh, raised in Seattle and having my group groups of friends and everything to going over to the UK where I was surrounded by Brits and other Europeans, everyone from, uh, from Dutch and Germans and Norwegians and some Hungarians as well, as well as a lot of people from around the UK. And it was a cross-cultural training center. And I remember speaking with, um, speaking with one of the Hungarian couple actually, because they wanted to do some study and they didn't they wanted to study cross-cultural communications with a view to being missionaries overseas. And they were asking me about my thoughts as an American overseas studying cross-cultural communications. And they said, you know, we've got an opportunity to go to America. Would you, would you recommend we stay here where we know people um, or look at going to America? It's going to be more expensive as well. And so just thinking about it, praying about it, I started to think about the nation that they wanted to go and serve in. The leadership with that organization was primarily American. A large percentage of the missionaries they'd be working with were also going to be American. And I recalled hearing when I was in Bible college a few years earlier, hearing that somewhere upwards of 70% of missionaries that led, left the international mission field left because of other missionaries. And at that time, being an American, studying in America, I couldn't really understand it. 
But when I moved out of my cultural context and saw how much culture plays into our value system and even the way that we read scriptures and interpret scripture or live out scripture, I started to understand how cultural rub can happen because we expect it with the people we're going to minister to, but we don't necessarily expect the cultural difference between us and the other people we're ministering with. And so I encouraged them. It'd probably be good for both them to get an understanding of, of the culture they were going to be working alongside, and it'd be good for that culture to understand something from a different viewpoint. Now here's, here's where it got really interesting is after being in the UK for two years, Esther and I moved back to the US and we were in Seattle having a meal with a bunch of friends of mine that I'd grown up doing ministry with and uh, discipling as well. And we were eating at a restaurant that wasn't there when I left in a facility that had drastically changed when I left. And the conversation was something that we just couldn't even follow along with because the style of conversation they had was to weave in a lot of inside jokes and also to use popular culture quotes from movies and shows and music in the middle of, of conversation. And to Esther, it was a foreign language. And to me, it was a foreign language because I'd been overseas. I'd changed in my communication style. And... I came back to people who had also changed and there were new shows and new examples and I just couldn't keep up, to be honest. And this resulted in, in what we call re-entry stress, where I didn't feel like I was even a part of my own culture. And I can imagine that for those who went into exile in Babylon, who were coming back to their homeland, and this is the generation that probably most of them hadn't even been born uh, or hadn't even been in Israel before. They were born outside and they were going back to their homeland. I can imagine there was a lot of re-entry stress. There's a, a passage in Ezra that I think completely notes this. But here's the thing. Societies change and we change. In the last two years, there's been rapid change in our cultures around the globe and also how we relate to one another locally and internationally in a very fundamental way. Part of this is the pandemic. Part is also to do with heightened emphasis on injustice around the globe. All of this has had a massive impact thanks to the instant communication that's available via technology. Doubt is cast on every world system and we are seeing that every human institution is imperfect, which shouldn't surprise us. After all, how can imperfect humans create a perfect system? None of this is surprising. As Revelation outlines for us how things are going to go before Christ returns to rule in true justice and true righteousness. And in that context, all believers are told to intentionally be a blessing during these times of transition as we get closer and closer towards the end. So just like the Jews of the Babylonian exile, believers throughout the world during this glo global pandemic, lockdowns, cultural upheaval against injustice, etc., we have had different responses. As our environment has changed, as our culture has changed with different values, different outlooks, really rapidly, 
we as individuals have changed and we are going through this together. And one of the main things that we need to do is by the power of the Holy Spirit, by his leading, by the wisdom that's for us in scripture, we need to figure out how we as believers be a blessing to our community in the midst of rapid societal change. Now, sometimes change is noticeable. Sometimes it isn't. If you look at me, at, if you look at a picture of me from 2019, I look slightly different. If you read a prayer journal that I wrote in when I was 19, I'm incredibly different. And to be honest, I'd hope so after nearly 20 years. So the question that I have for us as believers is, how do we return from exile in unity so as to be a blessing to all nations? Acts 2.42 gives a great example. Now, historical context, it's the first generation Messianic Jews. They're Jews that believed in the Messiah as the Christ. He was a son of David promised by God the Father through the prophets. And while it's before the gospel was presented to and believed by the nations of the Gentiles, it gives us a crucial look into what brings unity. As believers today, Messianic Jews and redeemed Gentiles alike, we too ought to devote ourselves to four principles that we read in Acts 2.42, which says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those four principles, growing in the knowledge of the grace of our Lord, building up the body in oneness in Christ, in encouragement, in whatever way we possibly can, face-to-face, -face, using technology over FaceTime, whatever, and in communion together in remembrance of his finished work on the cross and the resurrection unto new life when we are face-to-face, -face, when we have those opportunities, being intentional to take those opportunities to remember Christ, to spur one another on to love and good works. And also through prayers of thanksgiving, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, time intentionally praying together. As the Lord says through Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, be joyful, grow in spiritual maturity, encourage other, each other, live in harmony and in peace. And what was the result of this lifestyle of growing in understanding, fellowship, communion, and prayer? None other than oneness of mind in Christ, a selflessly sacrificial lifestyle, and joy that's recorded in Acts 2, 43 to 47, which ultimately results in, them have, in the believers having favor with all the people. And ultimately, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. As Jesus says to us in John 13, 35, they shall know that we are Christians because of our love for one another. When we follow these four principles of Acts 2.42, we're not promised that it will be perfect. Just look at Acts 6, the unequal care of the Hebrew widows and the Hellenistic widows, which led to the creation of the office of the deacon, or the debates about the role of the Mosaic law in the Christian community. In Acts 14 and 15, we'll see the response there as well. There will be differences, dare I say, in the operation of the body of Christ in these contexts. The method that we employ to proclaim the message with which we've been commissioned and which we are, through which we are a blessing and build kingdom communities, that method will change. 
If we become so sidetracked by necessary changes in the methods, rather than being focused on living out the message, we become idolaters. So to conclude, as we look forward to coming back together out of this exile, how do we as changed individuals return to fellowship in a changed environment and a changed culture? For that, there are a few things that we need to commit to remembering and a few practices that we need to be devoted to living out. Firstly, we need to remember consciously to keep God's eternal perspective about his plan and our partnership with him in his plan. We are his ambassadors of reconciliation. He calls us slaves of righteousness rather than slaves of sin. And he has called us to intentionally be a blessing to one another and our culture according to his righteous work within us. We need to remember that God is a, he is the one that is working it all out for his own glory. And we read that in Romans 8, 28 to 30. We need to remember that in Christ, we have perfect unity. Have a look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. We have that perfect unity in Christ without uniformity. We're a body with different gifts, different enablings, and even different hearts for ministry and different hearts for people. And together, all of these express God's heart for all people. We need to remember to, to spur one another on to love and good works out of a heart that speaks the truth and love for God and for one another. And here are the four practical disciplines that are laid out in Acts 2.42. We need to be devoted to the scriptures, growing in them day by day. God didn't give us his word that we might be informed. He gave us his word so that we would be transformed. We need to be devoted to deep, genuine, spirit-level fellowship in whatever way we can. We need to be devoted to intentionally remembering Christ together in the everyday, breaking bread, having coffee, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. And finally, because these three can be genuinely hard, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, we need to be devoted to prayer for, for one another, for God's glory, and for Christ's return. I really can't wait to see you. I can't wait to catch up face to face. I look forward to hearing what God's been teaching each other about himself and for working together and seeing how he's leading us to build his kingdom until Christ's return and to be a blessing in the city of Newcastle. God bless you guys. I should pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this community. Lead us, guide us for your glory, and may we be a blessing that you desire us to be. Amen.